Well, today I found the name. Found it while I was weeding the back garden and thinking about the way that plants seed themselves. Windborne, animal-born, waterborne, far from their parent plants. They have no ability at all to travel great distances under their own power, and yet they do travel. Even they don't have to sit, just sit in one place and wait to be wiped out. There are islands thousands of miles from anywhere, the Hawaiian Islands, for example, and Easter Island, where plants seeded themselves and grew long before any humans arrived. Earthseed. I am Earthseed. Anyone can be. Someday, I think there will be a lot of us. And I think we'll have to seed ourselves farther and farther from this dying place. think it's your pet now Uh, i think that is your chicken now (laughs) that is that chicken is coming with you to wherever you go next i can't i don't have i can't handle the responsibility of a chicken uh right i just don't think i can handle it i i did sort of i'll be here for another week and my plan is to drop by every so often and see if he's still there but i suspect the 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 uh, foxes or coyotes will make short work of him, unfortunately. But, yeah. But you know, or maybe fortunately, but it's it's sad to me just because like it wouldn't bother me if like a wild turkey was killed. But it's just something about the helplessness of this animal that we humans have bred for the purpose of keeping in a farm, then being cast out back into the woods. To me, it seemed out of sorts and it seemed confused by its lot. Mm-hmm. It's like, is anyone going to come and give me? You know, right. corn, that's what's happened for my entire chicken life. And I was like, well, I will. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Although I only gave it, I looked up its caloric needs and I only gave it half its caloric needs in the hopes that it will like get some energy, but also try to like scratch around for bugs and insects and maybe learn. Maybe it'll become the wild chicken of Four Creeks. I hope so. That would be great. Would. Um, yeah, you really have been having some bird stuff yeah. recently. Um the, the place I really wanted that story to go was like an ever ascending size of bird. Like, like, like there's like a chicken and then like a few minutes later, like sure enough, a wild turkey comes out of, and then like, a, um, and then, you know, an American condor <laughs> and like, finally there's like an emu kind of like pack, like pecking at the door to your camper and you being like birds. Go away. And then the emu says something like, you think that's weird? Last week there was a zebra here. (laughs) And the bartender buys you a free drink. (laughs) Ka-ching. Yeah. Yeah. And then like weirdly somebody hits a cymbal and you're like, what the hell? Why is, why is, who's got a drum set out here in the Northern Florida wilderness? Yeah. Yeah. My living in like the monkeys, uh, 1960s TV show. That's, that's how I want the world to go at the moment. I want the world to be like a a monkeys, uh, like a, 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 just a recurring episode of the monkeys. That would be great. That would be way better than, you know, the rest of everything. But not the uh, monkey's paw episode where Mickey loses his voice because based on the short story, the monkey's paw. Oh, wow. Which, which is, you know, quite dark. Dark. That's, I did not know that somebody did that for an episode of the monkeys. Was that like, um, is that like one of those things that sometimes happens in sitcoms where they just like bring in some wildly inappropriate writer and they're like, I don't know. They're like, you know what, you know what this episode needs? This episode needs like some Norman Mailer. 
Like, can we get or Norman? Maybe, maybe we can get Norman. Yeah. Let's send a, a <laughs> Norm Mailer is like, fuck yeah, of course I'll write an episode of the monkeys. We'll base it on the monkeys pod. It'll be fucking amazing. Somebody bring me a typewriter. That could very well have happened. Yeah, Norman Mailer with his like clipped transatlantic sort of like rapid fire way of speaking like i have an idea for you right now we're gonna do an episode based on uh, the monkey's paw i can see it right now mickey loses his voice the monkeys have to quest all around the world yeah um well you know the monkeys tv show i've actually mentioned this on finding favorites with leah jones the other day uh which you have also recently done an appearance i, I wanted to mention that um actually let's just take a moment and mention that both of us were invited uh to have a guest appearance on a uh, lovely podcast called Finding Favorites with Leah Jones. And I talked about Richard Lester's The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. You talked about tabletop role-playing games. The Monkees was based on the movie Help, directed by Richard Lester, who directed the two films oh my God. that I talked about. But Help was the, the Beatles, the second Beatles movie. The totally. first was Hard Day's Night. And then Hard Day's Night was kind of like a gritty day in the life of the actual Beatles. And then Help was this kind of like spy movie spoof yeah. uh, where, um, yeah, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but essentially... Ringo has this ring on his finger that is needed by kind of like a temple of thuggy type people from India. And so they try to kidnap him and chop his finger off and it's international intrigue. And all, but all the sort of humor and sort of the aesthetics of that was what they based the monkeys TV show on. Wow, that is uh, that's quite a circle that we just that, that that's like a that was like such How an upper middle brow circle. <laughs> like, like, it's and like, then in the monkeys, there was an episode where Davy Jones found a chicken on the side yeah, of the road. I bet I, I you know what I'm I'm I would not be surprised I, if that there actually probably happened. is a pet chicken somewhere. Yeah, in I, the that 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 is like so on brand for the monkeys. <laughs> with this, yeah. what do we do with this chicken? <laughs> Yeah, so my other theory, you have your Norman Mailer theory. My theory is like the writer's room, they were sitting around and they had a version of something like Google, except for it's a reference book about literary illusions. And they just like, they just looked up all the stories, anything pertaining to the monkeys. Just were like, oh my God, it's season three. We're completely dry ideas. I mean, what do you got? Well, you know, there's something in the Bhagavad Gita about the, like, monkey uh, god. Oh, that seems a bit weird. Oh, wait, the monkey's paw. Ooh, this could be good. What if Mickey Dolan's lost his voice because of the monkey's paw? That's my theory. I like that. That's a good theory. Yeah, I mean, because that's definitely how that sort of thing would happen when you're three or four seasons into something and you're starting to be like, okay, we've exhausted all of the normal things. Um all right. Well, oh, well uh, should we get, up, should we get any, down to yeah, it? Let's get into it. Let's get into All this. Right. The, yeah. yeah, let's get let's get into this motherfucker. It's uh, it's what a what a fucking book. I am dreading. Mm. I'm dreading doing this talk, and I'm also so excited to do this talk. Um, but um, yeah, listeners, thanks for tuning in today on Upper Middle Brow. Uh, Jesse and I are talking about Octavia E. Butler's 1993 genre-defying novel. That's a little setup for later. Um, mm. The Parable of the Sower. Uh, Butler won the Hugo and Nebula Awards in her lifetime, though not for this not particular for this. work. Um, and she also won a MacArthur Fellowship in 1995. She is identified as one of the only or maybe the only like science fiction and I'm putting that phrase in quotes writer to, uh, to land a MacArthur fellowship. Hmm. But, um, 
I wonder if that's changing these days as we begin starting to, um, yeah, redefine what science fiction or speculative fiction might be. But uh, yeah. anything else you want to say about the book Broad Strokes before we jump into a, a short recap? I think many people will know this, but my sense is that Octavia Butler, despite winning those prestigious awards, flew a bit under the radar, even among a lot of people who read science fiction in the 90s. Um, maybe the exception being African-American readers or, or black readers. Mm -hmm. um, and there definitely is a generation of black writers and filmmakers, though, who are influenced and shaped by her and are now more prominent and more influential. So I think we're hearing more about Octavia. And in fact, there is a Parable to Sow or a TV show now. Is that right? Or really? something, or maybe it's being made or, yeah. And I think maybe they're making something out of Kindred. There's more happening with Octavia's intellectual property than there has been. Um, and certainly than there was in yeah. her lifetime, despite being, I think we'll agree, a very accomplished writer. And Such an accomplished, accomplished writer thinker. and, and, and taken away too soon, uh, died in mm. 2006 at the age of 58. Um, wow. it would be, it's one of those great tragedies of writing and literature when an author who is underappreciated and then dies young and then becomes appreciated. This isn't the case of, uh, oh, we were talking about Melville just a little while right. ago. Like Melville really doesn't get any respect when he's alive. Um, right. and, uh, and now, you know, is like, you know the great American author. Um, but yeah, I, I wish, I wish Butler, um, yeah, would have stuck around a little longer to, to witness some of the fruits of her, of her labor. And, and it would be interesting to hear what she thinks of our contemporary era as well. Yeah. Um, well, she, she, boy, I mean, when you write a novel that's set in the early 2020s after the United States and the world has undergone some sort of climate change and plague-induced dystopia. And, and, and decline, a sort of increasingly dysfunctional political system. She pretty yeah. much nailed it down to, uh, down to the dates. Um, I'm really, yeah. I'm not, I'm not very excited about 2024. I mean you know, any, any more so or less so than I was already. But, uh, so you, you picked this, we're kicking off our series called black SFAF that you came mm -hmm. up with and you pitched in our draft, uh, a long time ago. Now, what moved you to pitch first of all, this series and in particular, this book? Well, I, I just felt for one thing that I could tell that our two our two pilot episodes were both white writers and it just was important for me that to to establish early on that we're interested in in discussing and reading and watching a diverse array of artists and writers. Diversity is important, I thought. So that was part of it, but then I also have not I like science fiction and I've only read maybe one or two works of um i read the lesson by mm -hmm. uh cadwell turnbull uh turnbull which uh is a, is a great novel and i'd read one of his short stories uh, i've read some samuel delaney uh you could argue that beloved is sort of mm -hmm. sci-fi or speculative fiction and i read that um but you know it's pretty thin and i think there are a lot more black american writers now writing in science fiction too so i just wanted to be part of it but you know i've been hearing about octavia for a while and um, I have read people making reference to her works. 
Um, and I just kind of felt like this podcast would be a great opportunity to to dive in. Um, and I also did probably hear some chatter on social media about how our recent pandemic was putting people in mind of that novel, too. Um, you know, along with Station Eleven and some mm -hmm. of the other kind of post-apocalyptic and particularly novels that maybe suggest that there's some kind of pandemic going on. So that's my rambly explanation of why yeah. we're reading this book. That's that's great. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we ever do an explanation that's not rambly. Yeah, so let's uh, let's get into a, a brief recap. Uh, we're sure. uh, we're we, we we read the first. Uh, we we decided to cut things off, or think at the end of chapter twelve of this book. Uh, so we're about halfway in terms of chapters, maybe a little bit, not quite halfway in terms of page count. Um, but the book begins in 2024. Uh, the United States seems to be pretty lessened from what it is. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know from from when it was the it, book was written depends. in 1993. From uh, in any case, the United States appears to be something of a failed state in yeah. the 2024 of this book and climate change and a plague have been kind of the precipitating forces that have gotten the United States to that particular moment. Yeah, would you say that's accurate? It, are there references to a specific plague? Um, or is it, I mean, yeah, it, it's definitely a decline situation. You still have people going to work. You still have agriculture. You still have the internet, even mm -hmm. though it's very early in the internet era. So some of the language that Octavia uses to describe the internet is old fashioned, but it's more or less the internet as we have it today with video calls and things like that. There's still food production, but all of those systems are declined, less available. And the sort of poverty that maybe you would expect maybe the bottom 5% of the earners or the income pool to be experiencing now seems to be maybe it's more like 75% of the country are experiencing sort of that level of poverty where maybe you don't quite have enough food or maybe you do, but only because you have, you know, some some fruit trees in your yard um, or maybe you do have enough food, but, you, you know, your your salary as a college professor is going just for state barely far you know, enough. Yeah, barely far enough and not quite. And you're fixing your clothes with a sewing machine and that kind of thing. Um, so and you yeah, would say that uh, you, you would say that sort of like um, the experience of perhaps like, you know, inner city poverty has been expanded to a much larger percentage of uh, of the United States population. Yes, and I think it's interesting that you say inner city poverty, um, but because these characters are urban, um, yes. Um, although I heard an interview with Octavia Butler too, where she talked about some of her inspiration traveling in India and mm. seeing street poor in India. So I would say maybe inner city poverty in the United States, particularly in the post-industrial, post-factory slash post-Reagan cuts to social services era, but also experiences that, you know, I've traveled in Africa and Central America and you have hardworking, middle-class people experiencing conditions not terribly unlike the ones the characters in this book are experiencing. Maybe maybe it's going a little bit better, you know, in those places where I've traveled, but it, it, not much, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's a good way of describing it. And I think it's worth saying that 
our main character, Lauren, young black woman, I think she's 15 when the book starts, and she's living in a kind of like middle class, it's like Pasadena or something like that, which is where Octavia, it's, it's a, it's a suburban slash urban middle class neighborhood, maybe 20 miles east of Los Angeles that at one time was probably quite prosperous mm -hmm. and still has many of the trappings. And the people in this community have kind of built a wall around their neighborhood and they're in a kind of mutual aid society. Most of them are people of color, but not all. It's a diverse community. You have black people, you have Hispanic people, and you have some white people, although the white people I think are the smallest minority mm -hmm. of all of those groups. And, and, um, and, you know, it's what, maybe 15 families, 10, something like that, and their extended families and some of their kids. And but, you know, the characters have jobs. They're going to work. They have modern technology. They get paychecks. They have insurance and things like they pay that. taxes still. They pay taxes still, um, but they're also just barely getting by yeah, and sometimes there is not getting a... by president there is still a government um right. it seems to be fairly uh ineffective or cash strapped yeah. um the uh the united states is like currently pulling back its its uh, space program uh as uh as the book is getting going um and um yeah our main character lauren has something called hyper empathy mm. uh where she uh feels the pain um and the pleasure of uh of people around her um that are going through um so it's very difficult for her to say get in a fight with somebody uh when right. she fights somebody she feels their pain and the pain that they're inflicting upon her um right. and it's uh yeah it it's described as a delusion um but she also bleeds when she sees somebody else bleeding uh, her brother plays a very mean trick on her where he pretends to be bleeding um and she bleeds because of it yeah it, it's i forget i think psychogenic is the term we use these days where the symptoms are real but the origin is in the brain and it is a it is a condition that we think she got from her mother's drug abuse mm -hmm. um it, when she was in the womb yeah um and over the course of the first half of this book uh there there not much happens right. plot wise but we get sort of three options for the people that are living in this particular world, in this particular neighborhood. Um, it's not safe to leave the neighborhood, to go outside is what they call it. Um, and the first sort of few chapters of the book, we meet Lauren, we meet her family. Um, there's a scene where they get taken outside to go target shooting. Um, the kids are taught how to handle firearms at a pretty young age. Um, she's also taken outside to be baptized with some other members of the, uh, of the neighborhood. And those are chances to see just how bad things are out in the world. Um, Lauren's first plan that she kind of hatches is basically just to run away, is to like learn how to handle a gun, learn how to live off the land. Um, and she sort of educates herself about ways to do that and makes the mistake of telling a friend who tells her parents and Lauren gets into some trouble. And that kind of forecloses the first option of escape, which is to just like, just prepare and then head out and leave. Um, and that's kind of option one that we get in these first few chapters. Um, we want to talk about option two a little bit. Right. So her uh, brother, Keith, who is kind of cruel 
um, and represented as not very smart and sort of chafing at his father's authority, starts running away, going outside, has a series of, at first, misadventures. Um, but he's chafing at the, his dad. The, the father is rather controlling um, because he believes that obedience and unity is necessary for survival. And the son is maybe 12 or 13, but he's quite tall and he's starting to chafe under that authority. At one point, he gets badly beaten and robbed, but then he goes out again and things seem to go a little bit better for him. Um, and again, we might see a parallel uh, with, you know, certain poor urban communities, which is he's actually able to make some money. Um, with his association with something like a street gang who he's mm -hmm. living with, who are up to some kind of criminal activities. He also tells Lauren about uh, robbing and shooting an old man. And he's bringing in a lot of money and he's giving some of the money to the family. He won't talk to his father, uh, but he does maintain a sort of detente with Lauren. And he's still rather close to his mother, uh, Corey, who's Lauren's uh, stepmother. So that's that's option two, um, and, and does, I don't. How, how does option two end? <laughs> option two ends with Keith's death, um, yeah. and it's a horrific death. His body is found. It's horribly mutilated. It's clear that he's been tortured for days. Um, it's heartbreaking for the family, um, and you know it does seem to suggest that this option of sort of trying to live a life of crime outside is very, very dangerous and probably won't work out for most people. It's probably a short lifespan out there if you try to. Maybe you can make some money for a while, but eventually someone's going to light you on fire. Um, option three, we learn about um, a corporation is buying up a town um, called Olivar, um, which I think is a real town. Um, that really it rings a bell for me. Um, and um, yeah, basically kind of a, a rehash of an old company town indentured servitude plan where this uh, company is going to purchase uh, a town and sort of privatize it. Um, you can really hear in this book a lot of the um, the playbook of, uh, of conservative politics. I mean, conservative politics in the 90s uh, about um, supply side economics and trickle down economics and um, privatization of things like healthcare and welfare and um, social net, social services. Um, and yeah, there's a, a corporation called KGF, I believe, um, that is uh, going to purchase this town and puts out a call for people that want to basically come and work there. Um, Lauren's father kind of sees through it and is like, no, this is basically just slavery in another name because you're going to end up in debt slavery uh, because of it. But um, a family that Lauren is uh, was close with, uh, the family of the friend that kind of told her mom about Lauren's plan early on, the Garfields, they bite on the offer and they do decide to leave. Um, um, and it's around this point that um, Lauren's father goes missing um, and goes missing in a way that pretty quickly everybody thinks he's probably dead because he's gone for long enough. And Lauren uh, basically goes through this kind of probably um, this probable uh, mindset of like, well, if he were alive, he would do everything to get back here. It's been a while. He isn't back here. Therefore, he is dead. Um, kind of a syllogism. Um, 
and the neighborhood is robbed pretty badly as this section kind of uh, finishes up. Um, some a local gang sets a fire to distract the people of the neighborhood, and while they're putting out the fire, robs three or four other houses at the same time, which is a real blow for neighborhood in this kind of state. Um, and yeah, anything else about the first half of the book that you feel like is necessary and from like a plot point of view? Uh, I think the only <laughs> other thing I would add, I, at least I have, is a real sense of this community becoming increasingly tenuous for these mm -hmm. characters. So in the first few chapters, things feel difficult, but workable. Like it's a tough life, but they're getting by. They're looking after each other and they're like, oh, you know, things are getting rougher outside. So we're going to start a neighborhood watch and the watch works and they, you know, they foil some robbers and then something bad happens. But they come up with a solution to that. And Lauren stashes, they stash some supplies in the backyard in case something's going to happen and they get a little bit of money. And and but as the first half continues, more and more bad things keep seemed you know, keep happening. The, there's the two deaths in the family. There are other deaths in the community. There's the arson and robbery. There's the Garfields leaving. And so not only is Lauren and her family experiencing kind of just a series of blows and kneecaps and things that threaten their survival and hurt their mental health, it also feels like the just the ability of this community to hang together and live this even tenuous life feels very threatened by the time we get into the second half of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great place to kind of uh, kick off my not my not host gotcha question, but a little bit of a host gotcha question. Uh, during the intro, I described this as a genre defying book. Um, what genre do you think this book lives in? Hmm. Well, Gosh, I'm going to give you another one of those mealy mouth answers. I mean, it, it it's a science fiction novel or speculative fiction novel simply in that it's set roughly 30 years ahead of the present of the time that it's written and imagining political, cultural, social scenarios that are plausible but not actual in the time and place that's described. So but from a very straight point of view, I would say it's that, mm -hmm. um, that that's the genre. Although, you know... I say that with some asterisks. Tell me about those asterisks. <laughs> well, I, we were kind of getting into it earlier, which is this world that feels very strange, I think, for me and you, is actually not all that strange for billions of people. Yeah. You know, it, it's strange that middle class Americans are enduring what these characters are enduring. We're not used to that. Um, but also, if you think about that, these characters are mostly people of color it is part of the black experience to have had some middle class um, status or some middle class security and then have it taken away, you know, either mm -hmm. by changing in the economy or by very specific policy. If you think about the black Wall Street in Oklahoma, if you think about, you know, the west side of Chicago, I was doing some interviews a year ago with people who remember when there were plenty of jobs on the west side of Chicago, and it was a kind of not necessarily thriving, but vibrant working class neighborhood where you could find work and there were things to do and there was, 
you know, there, there was a sense of abundance, there was a sense of community, and that got taken away. So mm -hmm. even the idea that sort of middle class people in America, and especially middle class non-white people in America, would experience the loss of the good times is not all that science fiction-y. It's no. actually kind of like part of our history. So that's that's my asterisk, I think. And then maybe my other asterisk is that I also think that another genre of this book would be sort of like whatever genre the Bible is, you know? It's yeah. like a book of theology. Uh, I mean, it's called the parable of the sower, for God's sakes, you know? Um, it is a parable, I think. I think it is a it is a myth-making document, and although to the degree to which I do think it's an open question to me, clearly the voice of Lauren, the protagonist, she is writing it as though she is developing a theology mm -hmm. um, and, and narrating her existence. Part of her narration is the creation of a theology, and she actually has a name for it. Yeah. Um, Earthseed, and and she has, and we get these uh, epigraphs from a future book which I imagine is a book the future Lauren will write of this theology. Um, that's that's my imagination. I'm not sure that that's what happens, but that's what I, I think we're being set up for. So it's, yeah, it's also kind of a, um, it's like reading the story of John Smith or reading the story of Siddhartha the Buddha or reading the story of, um, you know, Moses uh, leading his people across the desert uh, to the promised land. Yeah, as I was reading this, I was, I, you know, we we were texting about this yesterday, where I was like, "What even is this book?" And you, you know, you wrote back like, "It's a theology document, like it's the founding document of a theology." And um, yeah, I mean, the the thing that you said about, um, you know, it's not surprising that like people in America of a certain non-white um, like ethnicity have things taken away from them all the time. And I think yeah. the like subversive work of this book is the fact that it is bringing that to everybody, to a larger percentage yeah. of people and being like, this is what it would be like if all of you experienced what we experience. Um, it's, uh, it's making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. And doing it in such a way that like, I've been talking about this book with a few people where I'm like, you know, the prose is just like simple and beautiful and unpretentious and straightforward. There's times where you're not sure if it's, uh, if it's Lauren who's writing or Octavia Butler, I've got a mm. reading later where I'm like, this is the author writing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that's intentional. I think that those things are intended to weave back and forth because I think this book is like you said, it's a parable. It's called a parable. I think we're supposed to see the uh, the seams. I think we're supposed to read the l figurative meaning onto the literal meaning at the same time. And holy shit, it works as just a really good story as well. Yeah. Like it's it's unpretentious. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's really good storytelling. Um, even though like it is kind of formulaic. The first half of the book is simply setting up the truth that there isn't a lot of option here. And in fact, the options are getting narrower and narrower as we head into the second half of the book. As the author, the main character is coming up with like basically a plan to leave Earth and inherit the stars. Whatever that means in this particular context, too, which is there's and I agree with what you said that it's it's a pretty good story. 
Yeah. Um, and it's a, and, it, and and you know what? This is a question I was actually maybe saving for the end, but I, based on what you just said, I actually want to throw it at you right now. Totally. Uh, it's one I, I came up with about five minutes before we started the Zoom, which is of all the authors we've read so far and discussed on Upper Middle Brow, who most resembles Octavia Butler? There's no, I don't think there's a right answer to this. I think okay. this is just an right. interesting thought experiment. Out of all the authors that we have read so far. Um, and if you want, I'm happy to go first while you think, because I came up with an answer to that. Yeah, you tell me. Well, my answer to this is very counterintuitive, but I actually think it's Neil Stevenson. Um, and certainly not tonally or thematically. They do not resemble each other at all, tonally or thematically. But if you think about what they're using the story, the book for, mm -hmm. it's it's very. I think that Neil and Octavia are both kind of doing theology and doing philosophy, and that is sort of the primary function of the novel. And where you might, even though they're both very good storytellers, you might sense some weaknesses. I don't know that they have the narrative control of some of our other authors like a, a Jennifer Egan or a, a Jonathan Lethem or even Andy Weir. You know, Andy Weir is largely trying to entertain and I think maybe distract. He's got some ideas. Lethem is kind of doing a lot of a lot of different things. Um, Jennifer Egan, I think, is is heavy. Like mm -hmm. the tone is similarly heavy. But her forces of opposition are much more internal or personal. They're more and like smaller. the smaller, yeah, and smaller. We're, it's it's a it's a it's a thirty seat theater versus this, which is the entire world is the stage, right? And the and entire this, universe is the stage. We're getting to that, right? And yeah. and and this book, it came out the same year as Snow Crash. Yeah. Um. And and you know. When we were reading Snow Crash, uh, we commented a couple of times that I don't think it's at all problematic or wrong that Neil Stevenson chooses to see the sort of fun side of that kind. That's that's what he does. You know, he's cartoonish. He's in, he's writing an adventure story. Um, but the world of Snow Crash is not that different from the world of Parable of the Sower. And we talked about how there are people out there who don't realize that it wouldn't actually be fun to live in the right. Snow Crash world. Octavia is somebody who realizes it would not be fun <laughs> to and live if in the you Snow are Crash a, world. If you are a white dude who comes yeah. from, you know, relative, relative means, then you, and this is, this is my whole, like I put a question in our rundown about like, is it speculative fiction only derived by the perspective of the person who is doing the speculating? Yeah. <laughs> like how important is the place of the speculator? And in this case, I think if you're sort of like a, a, a Neil Stevenson person, then you might look at a failed state and be like, oh, bullets bounce off of me all the time and like see a place to do an action adventure romp. And if you are not a like white, middle to up, middle upper class dude um, that you might actually see something quite a bit more tenuous and quite a bit more threatening. Yeah. I mean, you could totally imagine the deliberator driving right past Lauren's neighborhood, you uh -huh. know, on its way totally. to delivering a pizza for the rich people with the private security who live up in the canyons. Yeah. Things this the the, the people that she's describing in this book in the 1990s would not and and now 
would not expect to be living with this much um, trouble. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, the, the, Lauren's parents are both college professors with PhDs. You know, like, sorry, her stepmom is Hispanic, Corazon, Corey. Uh, the dad uh, is black. Uh, they both have PhDs. They both have... They teach at a university. I don't think it's a super prestigious one, but people who teach at a university don't expect that their survival is going to be threatened by, you know, their neighbors trying to, like, you know, set fire to one house in their neighborhood so they can rob all the others. That's not an expectation. But I but I think your general point is is absolutely spot on. This is not speculative for some people. And it's mm-hmm. simply about who you're making those things happen to. These are conditions that existed in the world of 1992 and exist in the world now. And I think she's like the, the, the thing that is so brilliant about this book is like her collapsing of circumstances into this much more sort of uh, difficult and dangerous circumstance um, of like, yeah, like this college professor who owns a a heckler and Koch submachine gun and keeps it in a quick uh, retrieval space underneath his uh bureau in the cupboard and knows that you need if you have a gun you need to be able to get to it quickly yeah um but the the when you said stevenson um so there's one chapter that is simply the beginning of 2026 that that all the chapter is is a section from lauren's later book earthseed the books of the living i'm going to read this and i want you to think about the stevenson books that we've read okay Civilization is to groups what intelligence is to individuals. Mm. It is a means of combining the intelligence of many to achieve to achieve ongoing group adaptation. Civilization, like intelligence, may serve well, serve adequately, or fail to serve its adaptive function. When civilization fails to serve, it must disintegrate unless it is acted upon by unifying internal or external forces. Which Neil Stevenson book could that have been lifted whole, like whole cloth out of? It's straight out of the Diamond Age, right? It, it, it's 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 um the old what's her name? The old uh, neo Victorian could have ex- sat uh, Nell and the other one, ladies down and said that. I mean, it's it's almost the exact same thing that uh, she says to them when they're having their trouble, that trouble with their teacher, Mrs. Stricken. And she does say at some point, you know, like civilization, she says like cultures or civilizations that are not, um, you know, that are not strong, that are not successful, get swallowed up by their neighbors. Everybody used to know that all the time because the constant need for like, castles and defense and now that has become a more abstract notion you know it it's the, i mean the, the, it's interesting because i think that neil stevenson and octavia butler probably see the world very differently in some ways as well but uh, yes they they share this particular view civilization and the fragility of civilization i think well and but let me just ask you i gave you my answer as neil stevenson you seem to at least Partially agree, but do you want to yeah. posit another answer to that question? I got so caught up in your answer. I think <laughs> I think I would agree. You know, like because especially the point that you made that what they are doing, they are world builders of a different kind of scale. Uh, both Butler and Stevenson are into creating worlds that seem totally formed at the biggest level. I don't think that. 
Egan or Lethem or uh, Andy Weir are really interested in that project. They're they're interested in, you know, Lethem maybe is the closest, but he's still interested in like social structures of a of a certain size and and kind of what that means in reflecting the the culture at large. Um, Egan and I, I still think the project Hail Mary like for all of the bigness of its setting it is really just a buddy book <laughs> it's yeah, about totally. friendship in yeah. outer space and it's amazing but um yeah stevenson is big i mean i kind of think you know like i mean there's a there's an echo with highsmith as well about the like creation of the creation of the self um because yeah. i think that this book this is this kind of gets at my like how many things is this book um, cause it's, it's a is coming of age novel for sure. 100%, you know, and like a creation of like who this person is in the same way that we see Tom Ripley becoming the person that he is, Absolutely. Uh, per- perhaps it's sort of headed the other direction. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, and, and I think the, just the sort of the, the humanist way that Butler deals with these big ideas channeled through the circumstances of this one neighborhood is, is really impressive. And I think the way, the same way that pretty much what Highsmith is trying to say about European and American cultures in the 1950s is being like really fucked up and like not okay. I totally agree about sort of the character becoming self-realized and having to sort of shed something. One of the most fascinating subplots or sub themes of this book is Lauren's relationship to her father mm-hmm. um, and how she both loves him. At one point she says, he's the best person I know. And I don't think she ever stops loving him and I don't think she ever stops admiring him, but she also starts finding his philosophy and theology to be inadequate to mm-hmm. the circumstances too. And um, Actually, I can't think of an analog with any of our writers that way. That, I will say, to me, does seem very Um, Mm African-American. If you think about sort of the relationship that like progressive, particularly and activist black people have with like the black church traditionally, Mm -hmm. because the father's a pastor and he's a Baptist and he's very much steeped in that theology. Um, and how, you know, within that community, there's both an affection and an acknowledgement of the strength of the black church and, you know, awareness. The black church was at the heart of really important social movements and is a source of strength in the community. And at the same time, a sort of sense of like, yes, but the theology is not actually adequate to our, mm-hmm. our needs at the moment. There's, it's, you know, it's white people's religion and there, and there's too much reliance on acceptance and obedience and not enough, um, admonition to shape the world as we need it to be mm-hmm. which i think is at the center of of lauren's theology you know the idea that that we have to create the world that we want and we have to imagine that world in order to create it totally and and where does i mean you know we're only halfway through the book so maybe her father does return in some mm. manner in the second half of the book we're not quite sure yet but what by the point in this book what how how has his religion helped him how has their religion helped him by this point of the book? Like, where where has it gotten him? Well, that's a really, really good question. And I didn't think about it. There's, there's, I don't know if there's a connection between his religion and his sense that the way that their community, their neighborhood is going to survive is by looking out 
from one another. Essentially, that their strength is unity and togetherness. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be a particularly Baptist or Christian concept. Maybe it relates to that. Maybe it doesn't. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, often his theology is is referenced in opposition to whatever Lauren is thinking about. She disagrees <laughs> where she talks about the book of Job. Um, and she says, yeah, that view of God totally makes sense to me. Essentially, she's talking about how after God does all the terrible things to Job, I think he takes Job on some trip and he's like, look, I created all these things. So basically you can't, you can't mess with me. <laughs> and, and she describes that as sort of like God is like one of her little brothers playing with his army toys. You know, you're mine so I can do whatever I want with you. Um, but that doesn't really answer your question. Um, maybe one of the weaknesses of the book is the father character is wonderful, but maybe a little bit underdeveloped. And I don't know if he comes back, that'll be very interesting. You know, you laid out sort of the three or four strategies of existence. I, I sort of thought of his death as kind of a cheap out of mm. that question. You know, if we're doing a sort of test of how do you behave in this situation, the fact that he's just basically kidnapped on his morning commute, it's like, well, his idea was not really tested, you know? Mm. Or or is it being tested all the time? And or like is the, it being tested it, all the and time? And I think the, the thing, the point that you brought out was that like, as we move into the, as we get to the second half of the book, the options are tenuous and getting more tenuous. Um, and it's like, is his strategy simply one of like attrition? Um, the, the older people are, she, Lauren notes that the a lot of like the adults are always like thinking that there's going to be a return to the, yeah. to the prior yeah. times. And I think we can see that that's not going to happen. But I think the dad can see that too. You like mm -hmm. his wife, Corey, maybe thinks that's going to happen. But dad seems to be sort of like, no, I don't think that's maybe it'll happen. That would be great if it did. But still, this, our strength is our unity and our ability to take mm -hmm. and literally our wall with its like broken glass and razor wire on it. That's our strength. Yeah. And wherever we would go to, we would not have a place that was defensible that had mm -hmm. fruit trees and acorn trees where we could make acorn bread. And, um, so I don't know. I mean, you know, she does think that her dad's philosophy and theology is inadequate. And I, I, I do think that'll be one of the interesting tests is what does she create in its stead? Yeah. Although we have the sense that she's not going to take her whole community with her. You know, she's planning to go outside disguised as a man and have a kind of walkabout, sort of like mm -hmm. a spiritual walkabout. So she's in a way, in a way, in order to kind of grow into whatever prophet she's going to become, she needs to leave her community behind. But that's not necessarily a solution for her community. It's a solution for her. Yeah, and I mean, you know, what's what's amazing about the thing that keeps that I am str not struggling with with this book, though it is a struggle, um, is it's one of those struggles of holy shit. How did she do this? Because it's it's like this is a this is a book that sits in the same kind of shape as like oh like you know oh this is like a mythopoetic kind of structure, um, and it does have that feeling of myth, um, and all of the little things are there that you just talked about like okay like our religious character has to like 
go out into the wilds. Like we've seen this story before. We've read this yeah. story before. It's like the central, it is the central story. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, you know, like, okay, this garden thing, it's not working out. <laughs> we, we got to go somewhere we, else. We got to leave. We got to go over the walls of the garden and make something new. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I have a question for you. I found you, t- you when we talked about the arrest, you talked about the hard start and the difficult yeah. first sentence. I didn't necessarily find the first sentence of this book to be difficult, but I did find the first three or four chapters to be kind of slow yeah. and hard to immerse in. And I, yep. I it wasn't until the fourth chapter um, where Lauren goes out target shooting and kills the dog and we were kind of brought into the action of the world and also able to visualize the world outside the the wall of the neighborhood better that I found myself really being pulled along. So I wanted to ask you if you had that experience too. Did you find this book a bit hard to get into? And if so, was there a moment where that changed? And where, <laughs> because I, I definitely feel like it picks up. Yep. And, and so, yeah, that's the question. 100%. I, I told, I was telling uh, my business partner earlier today, like, first of all, this book is amazing and she should read it. And then second, that it, I'd really had a hard time getting into it. Um, I tried, I tried reading it twice and sort of got lodged up in the second chapter and was like, what is this? Uh, and then I listened to it a few times and then, yeah, it wasn't until I was driving somewhere and I think it was right around the same spot where the action really did seem to kind of pick up and like i was like wait they're like out target shooting and like she kills a dog and what wait what's going on here like suddenly like there seems to be quite a bit more action and then i was like and then went back and all of my expectations of the book which i recognize are projections (laughs) or you know like me not get it, me not totally understanding what it was that I was reading. Um, it's an epistolary novel. Uh, it's not an epistolary novel. It's a, but it's a diary sure. novel. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and like at first, my sort of read was like, oh, this is like going to be a book about like conflict with her father and like something happened three years ago when like his God stopped being her God. And I kind of lurched into the book with this feeling that the father was going to be the antagonist. Mm. And I, it is a hard start. And, um, and I'm, I was trying to be like, how is this my problem and not Octavia Butler's problem? Um, because I think it is my problem and not Octavia Mm. Butler's problem. Um, that said, I wouldn't have minded, a a slightly quicker nudge to understanding what's going on. It's not an easy start. We start in a dream and the dream itself switches action a few times. She's learning to fly at first and then things start catching fire. And then she's sort of in a much more normal dream setting, like a more like lifelike dream setting rather than flying or being on fire. Um, it's a hard beginning. And there's these like little snippets of like these earth seed books. And I'm like, what are, what are these? Like, where are we? Um, it's... And the first three chapters are just a lot. It's a lot of her thinking about yeah. stuff. It's like, 
oh, should we go to space or not? Should we vote in the election or not? It, you know, it, and it, and not, not there's, you don't see Lauren doing anything until mm -hmm. that uh, target practice chapter. And I think they're probably, I, is it, is it, yeah, I, I have the same question. Is this my problem or is this Octavia Butler's problem? And I do think I kind of land at, well, there is something about lulling us into a sense of stability early in the book because then the gut punches start and you kind of in the first part of the book you're kind of like nothing terribly big is going to happen is it like we're probably mm -hmm. it's just going to be about like how you sort of it's sort of like like um the arrest it's sort of like what do you recreate in this sort of like not less technological less affluent world and then like holy crap big things start happening big gut punches start coming um in fact, I have a reading related to that, um, but... Um, but yeah, give me, your, give me your reading. Yeah, so, and I also just want to say, like, you, you mentioned earlier having a couple of moments where you felt like you were you were reading Octavia and not Lauren. Um, I did feel there were a few clunky bits like that, too. Uh, there was a long, maybe in chapter two or three, kind of dialogue between Lauren and her friend Joanna that was just like, this is just not how people talk. And I also kind of <laughs> get it. It's like, it was just like a long, like, but then of course, like the plagues are coming and everybody's dying of measles. How long do you think we're going to, it was like sitting in a social studies class, having a debate. This is a counter example of where I, so I felt like the narrative control was hit and miss in this book. Um, although more good than bad, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, this is a moment where I thought the narrative control was splendid. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is, Keith has been out for about a year, uh, making money, living with these criminals. Apparently he knows how to read and they don't, so that's why he's useful to them. He comes and he get, brings gifts from time to time. He's wearing nice clothes. Um, it is Lauren's birthday, She's been having sex with her boyfriend, Curtis, and Keith kind of sneaks up after they're done and she's walking home. Keith kind of has snuck over the wall and kind of sneaks up on her uh, to visit her. Keith scared me out of a very sweet mood. He came up from behind two houses without making a sound. He had almost reached me before I realized someone was there and turned to face him. He raised his hand, smiling. Bought you a birthday present, he said. He put something into my left hand. Money. Keith. No. Give it to Corey. You give it to her. You want her to have it? You give it. I give it to you. I walked him to the gate, concerned that one of the watchers might spot him and shoot him. He was that much taller than he had been when he stopped living with us. Dad was home, so he would not come in. I thanked him for the money and I told him I would give it to Corey. I wanted him to know that, because I didn't want him to bring me anything else, ever. He seemed not to mind. He kissed the side of my face and said happy birthday and went out. He still had Corey's key, and although Dad knew he had it, he hadn't changed the lock again. Wednesday, August 26, 2026. Today, my parents had to go downtown to identify the body of my brother, Keith. Saturday, August 29th, 2026. I haven't been able to write a word since Wednesday. I don't know what to write. And it continues from there. What about that section um, is, is 
describes what you're talking about in terms of narrative control? Well, there's so much going on in the visit between Lauren and Keith. And there's kind of a power struggle that they're having. Lauren doesn't want to accept his gift, Mm -hmm. but also kind of needs to accept his gift because the family desperately needs it. So she wants it to be a gift for Corey, her stepmother, who Keith is very close to and not. So they're kind of jockeying over that. Lauren and Keith have never really gotten along very well, but Lauren has made sort of an effort with him. And so there's also a kind of tenderness to it, a sweetness, like maybe Keith is actually becoming a little bit more fond of Lauren, Mm -hmm. like they're building the relationship and you you're wondering, well, where is this going? Maybe maybe Keith's way is the right way. Maybe, you know, maybe maybe he's going to become some kind of criminal mastermind. Maybe he's going to be the one who supports the family. What does that tell us? And if dad becomes ineffectual and if Keith becomes the supporter, wow. And then Wednesday, August 26th, today, my parents had to go downtown, identify the body of my brother, Keith. And that's what it would be like, right? You yeah. would be—he would be visiting. You'd see him. You'd be—you'd be in the midst of of jockeying with him. There would be things you wanted to say. There would be things that were changing in that relationship. There would be things that are getting worse. There'd be things that were getting better. And then he would just be dead. Yeah, gone. And the other thing that I find just creepily, creepily eerie is that uh, several years—I might—I might lose my composure when I tell this story. But several years ago, my grandmother pulled out her mother's journal, her diary, and explained, you know, her mother, they were sort of like Scots-Irish people living in upstate New York on a farm. And there's descriptions of, you know, cutting ice in the winter so that you would have cool an ice house in the summer, you know, uh, dragging the ice back with sawdust, packing it with sawdust, you know, filling up the root cellars, letting the cows, like marrying... Ingalls Wilder stuff. Just um, my great grandfather had um, asthma, terrible asthma, and he was always going to the nearest city, uh, I think Plattsburgh, New York, um, for these completely ineffectual treatments where they would make him breathe steam, which does not help at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, there's one entry that just says, date, Henry died. And then Every single day there had been an entry and there are no entries for three days. And then three days later, the entry is, and so ends the happiest years of my life. And then, and then she continues keeping the farm diary after that. And of course, as you do, as you do. Um, and just, just the way that it was written so, Matter of factly, today my my today my parents had to go downtown to identify the body of my brother Keith. Three days go by. Saturday, I haven't been able to write a word since Wednesday. I don't know. I mean, it's just so true mm-hmm. to my limited experience of how these things go. It's just such a beautiful moment of prose. But then, boy, is it ever plot, yep. too. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think I think that's the thing that is kind of blowing my mind about this book is how that it operates in all of these different areas as like a very effective storytelling vehicle. Like she she does she does a very good job of creating her 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 chassis. Like and and you can see the chassis. Like you can see the pieces. You can see like oh, here's option 1, here's option 2, here's option right. 3. Um, and you can see the chassis of the fact that it's a diary book. 
the framing isn't particularly innovative or, you know, different. And then it also manages to be this like very emotional piece of literary fiction. And at the same time, this like overarching arc of like theology creation and like humans leaving the planet kind of right. Like, like book of Mormon yeah, <laughs> um, kind of thing. And that, you know, I mean, like I, I, the, the point that your story makes me think of is so like, you know, as you were saying, your, your family in this particular moment in their history is not living a particularly privileged existence. You know, they are living a, like a somewhat hard scrabble life. Um, and I would say that a lot of this book is about the fact that when you are living in circumstances like this, you don't have time yeah. <laughs> to uh, really grieve perhaps in the way that maybe people in other upper classes might have the literal luxury to grieve yeah and a lot of the grieving has to happen in you know a paragraph that you write in in the journal and then you know it's interesting after that because a few days later lauren has this observation that she hasn't cried and you know she says something to the effect of well i don't really i kind of hate keith you know i love yeah. him but i hate him too but she wishes her father could cry for him um, and, and it's really beautiful because one sense is that she probably is sadder than she's letting herself admit, but she's also kind of hardening herself to the reality of the world that she's living in. And Keith was harming the family. You mm -hmm. know, he was creating pain and that couldn't go on. And so in a way, it's almost, you know, she says something like, it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad his suffering is over. Um, but I'm, you know, there's also a sense of like he fell behind, you know, uh, he, his existence wasn't really compatible with what we what we needed. I mean, the other thing it makes me think of what you said right now, one of the themes of this book is the agrarian at many times in human history has been kind of a fallback position for the poorest people. Mm -hmm. And so you're describing that, which is the agrarian is a tough life, but you can make it work if you if everybody's on board and you're working all the time and you're, you know, repairing the torn jeans and using the shoes until they literally fall apart and then trying to repair them and mm -hmm. and eating the acorns and then what's happening in this book is even the agrarian is failing around them you know and then or at least their, their opportunity to live that gets stolen yeah and like you know and it's i mean like it's like it this this book is about the experience of being of being of basically being poor but yeah. then like but the entire world has suddenly gone poor and everybody is trying, like you just said, to like establish a fallback position, like her dad. Her dad is just a figure of the status quo. Like, let's just keep doing what we've been doing and maybe we can last as long as we can. And Lauren is the only sort of forward and upward thinking character in the in and it's like it's like we're reading a novel about a prophet. Is kind of the way yeah. that it feels. Um, yeah, yeah. She's the only one who can imagine creating a better world too. And also, to your point, I'm not sure the entire world is poor. The corporation that that buys the sa the desalination plant is a Canadian, Japanese, German, 
operation, which, which there was a lot of anxiety around this, you know, in the 1990s, that maybe those countries have sort of eclipsed the United States. The United States has kind of sunken into an undeveloped country, but other countries might be doing better. And even in America, there are still rich people with their private security guards and, and totally. mansions and stuff like that, although perhaps they're in a different kind of prison. True. And I think, I mean, like, I think the... Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be stratification. I think the genius of the way that she has set this book up is that she has simply like moved the slider so that instead of, I don't know, you know, 20% of the United States or the modern era is living in poverty, it seems to have been slid to like 90%, you know, so like basically yeah. taking yeah. The, the inequality gap and just like pumping it up to 11 um, yep. And that's the animating force behind this novel is really yep. just taking an experience that like one group of people in present day United States, 1990s, aughts, present day, and expanding that to this like much bigger place. And that's, I mean, like, that's what's so interesting about this book. That's the only thing speculative about it. It's like, what, what, would, how would things be different if our experience were 90% of the world's experience. Um, and like, would that be enough to start thinking about departure? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, really well put. If everybody experienced what, like what a lot of black people in the early 1990s experienced, would that then be finally the thing that got us off of our asses to both either fix things or leave? Yeah, and it's not clear to me whether by Earthseed she's thinking in terms of a literal departure, although it certainly can be that. But there's also, I saved a section of her theology that I particularly liked. Um, I'll just read, it's very quick. A victim of God may, through learning adaptation, become a partner of God. A victim of God may, through forethought and planning, become a shaper of God. Or a victim of God may, through short-sightedness and fear, remain God's victim, God's plaything, God's prey. You know, and I don't fully understand her theology, but if you understand the metaphor of earth seed, I think God is, is the earth. And she might, not be, she might not be saying we need to leave the earth. She might be saying we need to remake the earth in some way too and that's not entirely clear to me I, but at one point she does say that god is something that you make i think she imagines god as the earth but also the world in the sense that we often use that term colloquially as in like oh the world the world of portland today or like <laughs> chris bag's world you know the world as in the circumstances in which we we live the mm -hmm. the the day-to-day existence you know the world of 2023 which isn't mm -hmm. a world but it's a year yeah but that's the same that's the same kind of uh metaphorizing <laughs> to sure. i think make up a word or butcher one um that she's that that i think she's talking about you know yeah. that like like i mean she she very clearly states that like god is change like that yeah. is the central tenet of this theology is that uh, i mean you know like right right off of the bat all that you all that you touch you change all that you change changes you the only lasting truth is change god is change 
And that's the, the way that this theology seems to work is a series of syllogisms. You know, if A, then B, if B, then C, if C, then D. Um, I mean, it is a very like, like literal way of thinking, like if you were in these circumstances and you were 15 and 16 years old, you very well may come up with a theology that works better for you than this kind of faith-based Christianity that involves a lot of belief and not much surety. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to read the beginning of chapter seven. Sounds um, good. There's the quick little epigraph and then, um, and then, yeah, I think probably the first paragraph of the chapter. I'm going to skip the epigraph. Um, that part's okay. But um, I mean, that part's really good. But I think the the reading I've got here is is gets at what I'm reaching for when I say that the identities of the narrator and the author begin to wash over each other in in important ways. Yeah. Saturday, April 26, 2025. Sometimes naming a thing, giving it a name or discovering its name, helps one to begin to understand it. Knowing the name of a thing and knowing what the thing is for gives me even more of a handle on it. The particular God is changed belief system that seems right to me will be called Earthseed. I've tried to name it before. Failing that, I've tried to leave it unnamed. Neither effort has made me comfortable. Name plus purpose equals focus for me. Well, today I found the name, found it while I was weeding the back garden and thinking about the way that plants seed themselves, wind-born, animal-born, water-born, far from their parent plants. They have no ability at all to travel great distances under their own power, and yet they do travel. Even they don't have to sit, just sit in one place and wait to be wiped out. There are islands thousands of miles from anywhere, the Hawaiian Islands, for example, and Easter Island, where plants seeded themselves and grew long before any humans arrived. Earthseed. I am Earthseed. Anyone can be. Someday, I think there will be a lot of us, and I think we'll have to seed ourselves farther and farther from this dying place. Hmm. And, and what do you take to be the dying place? That is a great question <laughs> because like it can be, you know, Robledo, California, where Lauren Olamina lives in this particular fiction. It could be, as you were just saying, like this world of the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area in a failed United States. It could be the United States. It could be Earth. It could be some metaphysical place of being. It could be an emotional state. She makes a decision to leave and there is this touching scene with her boyfriend, Curtis, yeah. where she's like, I, I don't want to leave. I want to get married. I want to be here with you. And like, it's such a real moment. It is such yeah. like, it's this like little personal scene that is like dropped into this Bible sized book. Yeah. And you're like, oh, <laughs> it's like a little moment of Chekhov. Um, I can't wait until we do the episode where we just take the moments where we allude to Chekhov and like string them together. Um, but Chekhov, um, Star Wars, and Larry Niven are big three. <laughs> One of my favorite moments from the last episode was there's a world, it's a ring. <laughs> That's the book. That's the book. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> it's amazing. And I Everybody's love my favorite, poor. My favorite Everybody's poor. That's the book. Can say the name of the world. You don't even. They're like, nope. They get it. <laughs> it's a world. It's a ring. But like, that's I, like it, this. This book is just blowing my mind. Um, I don't love it, but I'm so excited to like think about it. And it has it has enlarged my world just in the last week of reading it. Um, because it made me realize like, oh, like there are things that can occur to your narrator or you can frame books in such a way that without drawing attention to what you're saying, the circumstances of your settings and your characters can really say the thing that you're trying to say. Um, and I think that this is one of those books where like, it's just, it looks simple and is, is really, really intricate. The way that she has structured everything is, is just, yeah, it's really, really, really impressive. Yeah. Well, and um, I think one of the things that has kept me from reading Octavia Butler was when I would read sort of plot descriptions, the plots always sounded a little bit silly to me. Uh-huh. Um, and this is nothing silly at all about this book, but just things like hyper empathy. I think in some of the books, characters have telekinesis and telepathy, and I'm, I'm not very interested in the supernatural. And it also just kind of sounds like sort of, you know, the schlocky version of Silver Age science fiction, like yeah. characters who talk like green, green skinned aliens who talk with their minds and live in bubble cities. It just has a kind of like a little bit of that, which is not to say that you couldn't make a really important, powerful story about green skinned aliens who talk with their minds and live in a bubble city. Um, so it, it, it is. I think I'm having a similar realization that there's much more grittiness and much more. Um, naturalism and then also much more really really good I totally agree that 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 sort of you know moment uh, with um, Curtis and Lauren it's it's sad it's heartbreaking and 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 the just the being able to kind of effectively write Lauren's ambivalence mm-hmm. in that moment and the conflict between what she believes she needs to do and what she yearns for uh, is so beautifully uh, rendered Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree. I, I'm tremendously admiring Octavia Butler so far. Um, but yeah, uh, shall we uh, transition into the trivia? Yeah, I yeah. should. Um, I think so technically you're the host in host. I'm host. I'm the host. You, I'm doing it. I'm taking my I'm taking my uh, my privileges as host. I'm getting to Great. ask Jesse gotcha questions right up front. Sweet. Um, okay. On what page <laughs> appears 212 commas, but only 19 periods? <laughs> That's like such a Chris Bag question, like, because my fucking brain would like remember the goddamn number of commas, but wouldn't remember like where I left the book. Hmm. <laughs> um, so Octavia Butler uh, was inspired to write fiction after seeing a fairly suboptimal movie from what sounds like a pretty toxic perspective. Hmm. Was that movie A, the 1951 film Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, B, the 1954 movie Devil Girl from Mars, or the 1964 movie Woman in the Dunes? Huh. 
That's tough because if she saw the 1951 film, let's see, how old was she? She died. My sense is that she was in her 30s in the 80s, so she would have. It, that I feel like that would have come out when she was very, very little. But first, I I don't know. Um, Women in the Dunes is very specific. I really don't know, but I'm going to go with A, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. I think I might have read that somewhere. It was B, 1954 movie, Devil Girl from Mars. Wow. Uh, where uh, the, the central setup of the movie is a bunch of women from Mars show up saying that the men on Mars have been wiped out and they need new men. That's sounds it. like fun sounds like <laughs> a fun it. weekend that's the plot <laughs> like why are they called devil girl for, well do they eat i know men? like that's I, not even that, addressed in yeah. the like, synopsis it's just like it just sounds to me like party girls from mars <laughs> yeah. you know like uh, spring yeah, breakers a... from mars <laughs> or better yet party bros from mars <laughs> party bros from mars <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, arguably that's sort of a stranger in a strange land. But um, there's a certain amount of partying. There's certainly sex orgies and um, a lot of swimming. Um, all right. Well, interestingly, my trivia for you is also about uh, inspiration. Um, hmm. So Octavia Butler had several writers who both inspired her and also offered her advice early in her career. Um, and particularly in the science fiction community. And one in particular uh, really helped her early on kind of like get some some work, like some writing mm -hmm. jobs, like some commissions and things like that. Uh, she also had a crush on this particular writer and referred to them by a secret nickname in her journal, maybe in case the journal was pilfered. Um, and the secret nickname translates from the Spanish as something like the flatlands, the plain, the steppe. Um, something like that. Um, so was this writer A, Harlan Ellison, B, Samuel Delaney, C, Ursula Le Guin, or D, Larry Niven? <laughs> I really want Larry Niven to just be like like an upper middle brow joke. Um, oh, God, I really hope it's not Larry Niven. Um yeah, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think that you just that, that that's your that's again. You do like to you like to bait me. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna go with Harlan Ellison. You're correct. Yes, <laughs> it was it was Harlan Ellison. And if you know anything about Harlan Ellison, you know that he often mentored sort of younger writers, and that he was actually even though he would sometimes maybe espouse kind of uh, problematic, uh, sexist, and racist beliefs also was kind of a champion of woman writers mm -hmm. and um, black writers in particular, too. I, yeah, I feel like in my digging around, I, I saw like an echo of that somewhere. Like I was like, ah, oh, that one feels, that one that one felt right. Um, does, the, does the thing that you read or wrote or discovered reveal why his nickname was like the Flatlands or the Steps? I think I figured it out. So, so the actual Spanish wor word was El Llano, um, which is, you know, L and then double L, oh, Llano. Yeah. So if you think of Ellison, yep. El Llano, El Llano, El Llano, um, I can imagine her sort of taking the word Ellison, Harlan Ellison, and kind of arriving at, oh, yeah, uh, like Ellie, 
Eliano, you know, something like that. Um, I, I don't know that he was particularly flat landy or steppy uh-huh. in his in his persona. If anything, I feel like he was more jagged and uh, sort of upland. So I'm guessing it's a little bit of a pun based on his last name. Um, so next up, listeners, we are going to be reading the remainder of Octavia E. Butler's 1993 novel, The Parable of the Sower. And uh, yeah, that should be coming out about 10 days from whenever you hear this particular episode. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Uh, Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes are the creators and charming and handsome hosts. Music is from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. The design and website is by Chris Bagg. And uh, I always like to do a call to action. Um, one of the things you could do is follow me and Chris and Upper Middle Brow on social media. I didn't write down all of our handles, so let's see if we can do them from memory. I know awesome. that I am at Curious Dukes on Twitter. Ooh. Um, Ooh. What are you on Instagram, Jesse? <laughs> what am I on Instagram? I am something. <laughs> I think on, I know it, it and you don't. I think I know what your Instagram handle. I believe you are at JPDukes9. I think that's right. Uh, I did finally get my Instagram account functioning again. I believe that you have the very clever name Chris Bag on Twitter. I do. I do. I am just at Chris Bag, and then I couldn't get it on Instagram, so I'm at Christopher Bag on uh, on Instagram. But yes, at Chris Bag on Twitter, and you can find my writing bullshit at chrisbag.com. And um, we are also at at Upper Middle Pod on Twitter if you want to follow the show. And do you remember the Instagram handle? Just at Upper Middle Brow. At Upper Middle Brow. And if you have, uh, if you need to go eat your chicken, that's fine. Real quick, though, I'd be curious, uh, quick reflections on the experience of appearing on a podcast, finding favorites and talking it about was awesome. role-playing games. Yeah, we had such a good time. Um, I, I think I did a fairly good job of like reprising uh, this year's like Wizards of the Coast, Hasbro yeah. sort of like <laughs> peccadillos. Um, yeah. And um, uh yeah, it was really fun. Um, I, I would have liked to have sort of talked a little bit more about other games, but I really do think that that we kind of got there. She does a very good job of just doing a really quick edit, wrapping everything up and then pushing the episode out. It was pretty impressive. Unlike us. Yeah. Um, ours is more carefully crafted listener um it's a it's a bit more exquisite yeah she's got a very uh this is leah jones host of five inning favorites and she has a very uh a very straightforward format and yeah there's not a lot of editing so you know if she mispronounces chris bag two times in a row before finally getting it then that's what you hear on the final podcast that's what you get uh, the, the, the rest of my life chris bragg oh god <laughs> you're, it's, it's like, like i'm in evil you're evil like cousin fucking little league again <laughs> wow i recently got we, we uncovered a little bit of uh, a little bit of repressed anger there apparently what yeah, happened yeah. in little league well i just <laughs> like an eternity of people being like his name couldn't possibly be bag um it's like a bunch of like the douchey baseball players who've been they're spending the 80s and 90s following the pursuits of darren bragg uh third baseman for Ah, uh, I'm not sure now, but Darren Bragg was Phillies? a, yeah, Phillies, I was about maybe? to say the Phillies, but then I was like, wasn't, wasn't somebody but else. A, Darren Dalton though. There's also a Darren Dalton who might've been yeah. the Phillies. Let's see. Let's uh, Darren, Darren, Darren Bragg, baseball player. Um, he was an outfielder. Oh, he was an outfielder. Yeah. Looks like he played for a bunch of different teams into the nineties. Yeah. yeah, born born in the, born in the sixties. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely like one of those journeyman 
journeyman players, but, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely got called brag quite a bit when I was, uh, playing little league growing up in good well, old central Massachusetts. I'm sorry that that happened. If you, if you notice in the finding favorites, when Leah on the third try pronounces your name correctly, I'm pretty sure she does so by imitating your imitation of Jenny G and Ben's pronunciation of your <laughs> yeah, name Chris. too, which I imagine. Bag! <laughs> yeah. Which I'm very happy is now like whenever there's a chance to insert my name <laughs> into the credits, that's what we're going with. Um, yeah, yeah. Jenny, Jenny G and Ben is 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 tickled pink that that she is having such a like existence. She has like a alter ego, an alter existence on uh, on Upper Middle Brow. The the Jenny G of myth and legend is heavily yeah. mythologized amongst our fifty listeners. I know, um, yeah, like a year a... from a year from now, we're going to be like, and if you donate at the fifty dollar level, you get the Jenny G and Bend stuffed animal. <laughs> you get Jenny G like recording your voicemail. That actually, uh, I was like, I was like, you know what? That's in the style like, of one of the your name here. <laughs> Uh, she's going to be so pleased. See, when you when we move to Bend together, Jenny G and Bend is going to be so happy about that. She might be like, Jesse! Jesse! Dukes! Dukes! <laughs>